This is Subject Matter, the show for creators who want to grow with audio. I'm Ben Bradbury. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Subject Matter. It's Ben here. It's great to have you back listening. I hope you're having a fantastic start to your week, end your week, wherever you are listening, whenever. It's great to have you tuning in. My guest today is none other than Tom Webster. This is an episode I've been looking forward to for a while. For those of you who don't know Tom, he had a 25-year career in market research, and he's recently left being the face of the infinite dial with Edison Research, which is one of the most highly anticipated interviews and pieces of research on the consumer landscape to go and follow his passion in podcasting with a good guy friend of mine brian barletta who runs sounds profitable tom has just put out a fascinating piece of research called the creators and it's a snapshot into the podcast industry and the people that are making the content that is powering it so this is a really spicy episode we're going to get into what tom's biggest influences are as interviewers Uh, we're going to get into why it's time to go international with podcasting what some of the opportunities are with what's called native language content what we can learn from that how smart speakers are playing a role in audio adoption his favorite podcast of all time and we will hear about why there's one podcast which is in tom's mind one of the most successful branded b2b podcasts in the game and it works because they don't sell the brand they talk about the brand to an audience who is weirdly passionate about it that's a fun one that's coming right at the end this is one of my favorite interviews i've done on subject matter it was an absolute blast having tom on the show i hope you enjoy it if you do you've got any feedback you can hit me up on twitter via email you know where to find me my details will be at the end of this episode Without further ado, please enjoy this interview with the Tom Webster. And we are live. Tom, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Like, excited to be here. So I thought we could start with your recent career pivot. You have recently wrapped up an 18-year career in one of the most established research companies in our industry in podcasting to now get your hands dirty working on a pretty big new opportunity. So tell us, first of all, how's the transition been going from a researcher to now more a creator yourself? Well, I'm really excited about it because I, you know, I spent 25 year career, honestly, in market research and a market researcher can research toilet paper and all kinds of stuff, which I've done in my career. But I have a passion for podcasting and for audio and to be able to focus on that, I think, was a kind of a no-brainer for me. It's the aspect of my research career that I was the most interested and passionate in. And, you know, as Brian Barletta and I started to talk about this, it just seemed like a really good move. So talk to us a little bit about why podcasting is your passion, because for those listeners who don't know, you until very recently were the face of a report called The Infinite Dial. And that was really a look at consumer behavior across the technology and media landscape. So you were looking at everything from cars and how technology is integrating there all the way to smart speakers and audio. But it sounds like podcasting is really that driving passion. So what is it about the medium that so excites you? Growing up, I listened to a lot of spoken word audio, and that was radio. I grew up in northern Maine, and on a good night, you could get a station from Boston that I listened to a lot and, you know, hear Larry King doing his overnight radio show, which no one remembers, but it was fantastic. And I, (laughs) you know, I just kind of grew up with that. And it's always been a huge part of my life. And 
And a lot of what that was, a lot of what radio was in the 70s and 80s, it's not on radio anymore. It's on podcasting, but it's still exciting and vibrant and that kind of companionship that you get from a great audio show that you can only hear in your skull, you know, you can only hear in your brain. That's meant a lot to me over the years. So regardless of all the things that I've researched and, and done work on in my market research career, it's really been that that's driven me that I'm incredibly passionate about. Yeah. And you use this phrase, this, the idea of having people in your brain, in your skull, that only you can hear. And until very recently, Larry King was that voice for millions of people oh, yeah. for decades and kind of growing up, starting in Miami all the way to becoming one of the kingpins of New York media with his talk shows and legendary interview style. I think there's a lot of people who would consider him a friend just by nature of how intimate he is, which is kind of one of the things you get from the medium. Who else has been living rent-free inside your, your head for a few years, Tom? Who, who are your other big huh. audio influences? You are clever. <laughs> I just want to say here, like, this is a great line of questioning. Like, you're, this is clever. Thank you. And I think a lot of people don't really understand how great Larry King was. So I'll just say that. Yeah, you know, they've seen him on the, maybe on his CNN TV show. But when he did his overnight radio show, I think the epitome of a great interviewer. But I'll also say here, and thanks for asking, I think Howard Stern is amazing. And if your listeners aren't familiar with the depth of what Howard can do as an interviewer, maybe they've heard about him as a shock jock and confrontational and, and all that, but no one can disarm an interview subject like Howard Stern. He's just been an enormous influence on my life as an interviewer, as someone who can really get to the heart of an issue. So that's someone I think that I truly revere him. And I, I encourage all of your listeners to go back and really study what he's done. And it's impossible to dissect mastery in, in just a couple of minutes. Yeah. But if you had to allude to some of the things that Stern does that makes him so world-class at putting people in a very comfortable zone to come out and express themselves, what would you say are the main kind of mechanics that he's deploying in his tool belt in an interview? Yeah, I mean, he changes your state. I think when you come into an interview and even coming into here with an interview with you, like you're in a state. And I think what Howard does and has done for decades is take you out of that state and not make you feel like you're being grilled on any one thing or another, but just like, okay, we're here, you and I, we're talking, let's put all this other stuff aside. And he's just really, really brilliant at making you feel like I can, I can be myself here. And that's not something that's very easy to do with interviewers. And I'm on a lot of podcasts, I get interviewed a lot, and it's not an easy thing to do to like make people really feel like they are at home, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Especially in such a short span of time, because the, I think the real art of a podcast is building trust with your listeners. Like if someone asked me to go for coffee for the first time, I wouldn't say yes to a two hour coffee. Likewise, I'm right. not going to listen to a two hour podcast interview from someone that I've never met before. I'm going to test you with 10 minutes, half an hour, see how that goes. And so you're building trust with the listeners, but for a guest, for someone who you've never spoken to at length before, the question is how deep can you go and how comfortable can you make them feel in a limited time capsule? And so I think that's definitely something to study. 
Let's switch gears now to your research. So you and Brian, the brains behind Sounds Profitable, recently put out a really interesting piece of research called The Creators. And this gives a kind of snapshot of where the podcasting industry is at through the lens of the people making the shows, what that makeup is, some of the trends and patterns that start emerging with that demographic. So we're going to go through some of these slides one by one. If people haven't checked this out, I would definitely recommend getting a copy of the research. You can find it on their website, soundsprofitable.com. Let's start with gender. So as everyone knows, gender is split pretty much evenly 50-50. But what people might not know is podcasting is pretty skewed. Nearly 70% of podcast creators are male compared to just 30% that are female. So kicking things off, Tom, why do you think that there is this imbalance in podcast creator gender towards men? Yeah. And to be clear about that research, one of the things that we asked the sample of podcast listeners was, have you ever worked on a podcast? Have you ever created a podcast or, you know, in any sense, right? Like could be a narrator, could be a producer, could be someone in sound design, whatever. So that's kind of historical. And that looks back at the nearly 20 years of podcasting. So in that span of time, it's largely been a male community. And some of that, I think, is from radio, because a lot of what podcasting came from in the early 2000s was the radio industry and people that, you know, didn't feel like they were getting their voice heard on radio as much as they would have liked. So that had a lot to do with it. But I do think that currently, in the last few years, there have been a lot more, a lot more women, there have been a lot more non-binary creators. And that's, I think it's going to gradually shift. But you know, there's no doubt that the historical basis of podcasting has been primarily kind of male driven. And well, there's a lot to unpack there. But I think today, I think the space is very vibrant. I think it's very diverse. I think the audience for podcasting is incredibly diverse. And that's the thing that I cling to is a saving grace, I think, or the medium. Mm. It also, I think, ties into this trend that we see across the history of media where consumers tend to always opt for two things. They'll opt for more choice and they'll opt for more control. So linear television was such a revolution because now you have dozens, if not hundreds of channels on your box set. But Netflix makes that look like small fry because again, you have thousands of shows that I can now pick at a moment's notice. So I've got more choice, but I also have more control. And podcasts are kind of the evolution of that to radio where radio gave us choice, but podcasts give us control. And so now you have the birth of networks like Dear Media, where over 90% of their audience are female. Lauren and Michael Bostick have done a great job of curating female-focused voices, and they're killing it. Their shows are doing tens of millions of downloads a month. And so it does seem to me as well that the technology has just got to a place now where women are able to not just hear the content they want, but also curate or create content that matches the kind of voice that they want to see out in the media landscape. And not just on gender, but I think the real story to me in podcasting is that the audience for podcasts is, at least in America, which is where I've done the bulk of my research, is more diverse than the population. And the audience for podcasts amongst Black Americans, amongst Hispanic Latino Americans, Asian Americans, is actually more diverse than the U.S. population at large. So I think podcasting has done an amazing job at giving people who lacked 
a voice or lacked power and ability to put their voices out there and to be heard in a way that, honestly, American radio has let them down. So that's, to me, one of the most incredible things about podcasting. And it seems like one of the big trends that is coming out of this that the, the industry is waking up to is this need for the industry to branch out internationally. Podcast has had really good domestic success here in the US, but there are other markets that are really hungry for it. Latin America is hungry for it. The Mediterranean is popping up with their own language shows. Europe as well is an extension of that. And so when you think about how podcasters can start to go international, I'm curious about how you look at this from a medium perspective, because YouTube right now is this year, they kind of went from being the sleeping giant in podcasting to being very focused on the medium. They hired Kai Chuck, their head of podcast partnerships. They're building infrastructure around it. Do you think about growth internationally from the perspective of an audio only medium, or are you thinking about integrating other mediums as well? And if so, how should we as podcast operators and creators be thinking about that? Well, I think, you know, the international story has not been told very well. And I think it's country to country, it's very, very different. There's a massive undercurrent and groundswell of interest in podcasting in Brazil. And a lot of it is about football. And, you know, we don't see a lot of that. We don't see the, you know, they don't show up in the, the rankers and things that we pay attention to, but there's hundreds, maybe thousands of football podcasts in Brazil that have audiences and like, that's part of the groundswell of all this. So country to country, I think it's really dependent upon what is being creative in the native language of that country. And for a long time in podcasting, it's been English. And the English-dominant countries have had a lot of, you know, in terms of the percentage of the population that listen and so on, it's been driven by the English-language-dominant countries. But that's starting to change. You know, you see that in Brazil, Sweden, Germany. Some of these other countries are starting to really kind of drive forward with native language content. And it's really about native language content. So as that continues to grow, and, and that's something that, you know, we're going to continue to track and hopefully research, it sounds profitable. That's what's really going to, I think, propel podcasting into a global medium that is a global vehicle for advertising and for investment. And, you know, and that's really, I think, what we're trying to drive to. So some of the listeners on the show are creators themselves, but we also have a pocket of listeners who, like me and you, are also operators of businesses and working directly with creators. I'm really curious about if we see this shift to native language content as a big opportunity for brands, for media companies who are looking to expand their enterprises into new markets. How would you approach attracting talent if you don't speak the same language as that talent? Can you just kind of talk us through what your thought process would look like there? Wow. I mean, that's a deep question. I mean, the one thing I will say, and I'm not sure, like, where are you based right now? Where are you that I'm talking to you? I'm in Brooklyn, New York City. You're in Brooklyn. Yeah. And in America, there is not a great current kind of radio tradition, right? Like the stations that you listen to, and I've worked for a number of them as a consultant, you know, C100, KTU, all that. It's kind of a very different thing than what you see in other parts of the world where there's a huge 
spoken word kind of tradition, you know, and there are large state-driven radio stations around the world that which we don't have here in the States. We don't have anything like the BBC in the United States. There's nothing like that. We don't have anything like some of the other European state broadcasters in the United States. But actually, people around the world, other than the U.S., have this incredible heritage of listening to spoken word and news and information through audio that we haven't had here in the U.S. for a long, long time. So to me, I think podcasting could and should be bigger around the world that, than it is in the U.S. That's one of the things that I really look forward to unlocking. Yeah, it does seem like there's a lot we can potentially learn from other markets as well. And I think the people that are going to be learning from those markets and implementing them, they're often what you would call the the decision makers in the workflows. And this brings us nicely to the next insight that I want to touch on here from the creator's research. You asked a question, does the financial responsibility for making workplace decisions lie with you? And overwhelmingly, the answer is yes. 86% of respondents in your research said that they actively drive workplace purchases. Why do you think there's such a strong correlation historically between being a podcast creator and having some kind of decision-making autonomy in your business? Well, I mean, that's a part of the social strata that I think podcast creators in the U.S. currently belong to, and that is, you know, people who have the spare time, people who have the wherewithal, the financial ability to finance themselves. And, you know, when we talk about podcasting, there are obviously some big shows and some creators that are blessed with millions and millions of listeners. But most creators in the U.S. and in most other countries, you know, they're doing a show for a handful of people. Like they're doing a show for tens, maybe hundreds of listeners. And it's a passion project, right? You know, the percentage of people that are actually making a living from podcasting is quite small. So, the people doing podcasts are part of a social strata that enables them to have that kind of spare time. And that's, I think, one of the big things that I wanted people to understand from this research is that the voices of people that we hear in podcasting right now are not overwhelmingly, but certainly to a degree, voices of privilege, you know, voices of people that have the spare time, the income to, you know, host a show and produce it. But it's not necessarily representative of all of the voices that we could have. So that that's a thing that I'm really passionate about. And you can look at that as a technology problem. You can look at that as a, you know, let's get microphones in people's hands or whatever. But I think it's also about encouraging people to understand that they have stories to tell. And in situations where they may not think that or they may not feel empowered to do that. And that's, uh, I'm really passionate about that. I think we all have stories to tell. And I hope the tech doesn't get in people's way. I hope that there's always an opportunity, I think, to tell those stories. But what the creators, I think, really illustrated to me was that the people right now telling those stories, you know, a good percentage of them come from privilege. And that's not the whole story. I want to come back to that in a second. And before I do, I just want to underscore this idea of podcasting from a place of privilege. I think a really a good way you can see what's coming behind or coming around the corner 
in the future is to look at the behaviors of well-off people. I think a good example of this is the telephone. The first people who had mobile phones were carrying them around in huge black suitcases in the 1980s. Yeah, I had one. And people would look at them. Yeah, right. You're like, you look at it now and you're like, what the hell is this? But that was a very early indicator of where we'd get to. And in 2007, podcast listenership exploded in the US. It went up by 5% from 2007 to 2008. And that was because Steve Jobs brought us the iPhone. And the iPhone, now you don't have to download MP3 files using this cumbersome wire to your computer. You can just stream it directly from the app store. And so that's a position of privilege, right? Like wealthy people had the iPhone first and now, over 15 years later, almost, we're at a point where not only do consumers have smartphones in developing countries, but the Wi-Fi and data is at a point where they can stream content directly to their phones too. So the technology's matured, the business model has matured, and now the content is just getting there, but it's taken that time. And so if we come back to this idea of getting more diverse voices on the mic, which is super important, it's something we think about a lot at, at Workweek as well. What would your blueprint, Tom, be for encouraging communities? And I want to get tactical here with kind of media strategy, because I know there are people here who are listening, who are passionate about this. If you were trying to galvanize a group who clearly has stories to tell, but maybe don't realize it themselves, how would you be thinking about reaching them? That could be platforms, that could be the type of message you use, that could be the kind of community that you build. Curious to hear your thoughts there. Yeah. And to me, it starts, it's boots on the ground. It's in schools. It's actually being on the ground with humans. And, you know, it's really easy for us to get like trapped into thinking that Twitter is the world when, you know, about a quarter of Americans are on Twitter and that quarter, they don't have any problem expressing themselves. Um, <laughs> True. So it's about getting boots on the ground. And, you know, I, I live in Boston there's a man here in Boston who bills himself as, as Mike Boston, and he brings a truck around, basically a van, which is a mobile studio, and he brings it around to communities in the suburbs of Boston where a lot of the youth don't necessarily have, like, they don't have the greatest resources in terms of schools and education and things like that. And he brings it around for them to record rap songs and encourage them to do it and to tell their stories. And that's been so meaningful, I think, for this town. And I, I think it does take outreach. You can't just say, I think a lot of podcasting is you know, like waiting for people to come to you. But actually, the next stage in podcasting, I think, is getting out there and finding the stories and encouraging people to tell them and giving them the tools to tell them because they're out there and they're meaningful, and they're vibrant, and I want to hear them. And unfortunately, you talked about the iPhone and, and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of podcasting, I think, emerged from Apple. And, you know, people who buy Apple products are wealthy and they're in a certain demographic and they're not necessarily representative of the mainstream, right? So the people that Apple isn't selling to, that's a huge part of the population. And that's the part of the population that I think needs to understand that they have stories to tell, that telling those stories is meaningful to people. And that's really the next stage in podcasting, I think, is to kind of break out of the folks that 
are, you know, and some of that's public media, some of that is just in certain circles, the chattering classes or whatever. But I feel like the spoken word tradition extends beyond all of that. I don't think spoken word is attached to one particular class. It's something that's ubiquitous across humans. And I mean, even if you go back as far as tribal times in Africa, like there's a huge spoken word tradition of having songs passed down through leaders in these rituals. And that would be the way that they would communicate information to each other before people wrote anything down. Like people forget paper is technology that came from ancient Greece. And before there was technology, there was voice and we were, we were communicating, we were, we were telling these stories to each other. So I think that's something that, yeah, it, it transcends class and certainly something we're going to see redistributed as well. I think one of the other interesting data points from the research I'm looking at is how the average podcast creator that you surveyed was slightly more affluent than average. And I think this comes back to operating from a position of privilege for now, but we're certainly going to see that changed. One trend that I think is a real indicator of change that I'd love to get your take on is creators passing on their love of podcasting to their children. So we asked the creators, what percentage of, uh, or you wanted to find out what percentage of their children actually listen to podcasts. And it turns out that two thirds of the creator's children listen. Now, I don't think on the surface, this is much of a surprise. Podcasters, children listening to podcasts, who'd have thought it? But I do think given the adoption we're seeing of the medium, there's some interesting implications. And I'd love to hear your take on what you think those are. Well, I think it's about exposing kids to the storytelling tradition. And I think we had a bit of a gap there for a while in terms of storytelling and audio storytelling. And, you know, I think smart speakers, you know, the Amazon Alexas and, you know, Google devices of the world are having a role in that because I do think mm. that people are bringing audio into their homes in a way that they haven't maybe in, in the previous decade. So there was a time when we all gathered around the radio and, okay, those days are done. I'm not that old and foolish. But I do think that audio storytelling is something that it's a family tradition and there's so much rich content in audio for kids, for you know teens, for tweens, honestly, that is not out there in other media. You know, I've done a lot of work in public media and... You know, here in the U.S., if you look at things like PBS on TV, you know, there's Washington Week in Review and Dragon Tales and nothing in between. You know, there's nothing in between for teens and tweens. And I think that's something that radio has fallen short on. Radio is terrible at that. But podcasting, I think, could absolutely be the medium of choice for people that are, you know, 11, 12 on up into their 20s to really enjoy and understand storytelling as a medium. And I, you know, my son's about to turn 18 and I've turned him on to all of this stuff. There's no place for him to hear the rich content of spoken word audio other than podcasting. And he's really enjoyed that. And I think that's part of continuing to grow the space, I think. Yeah, it comes back to what I mentioned earlier of consumers opting for more control and choice in their in their content. Teenagers especially, I think that's why a lot of them will just watch YouTube versus linear TV. It's because they can go and watch their favorite creators and being able to kind of slot in and 
serve those markets. I think there's a huge opportunity. I'm friends with a guy who uh, is signed with iHeart, Jim Jacobs, and he has a show called Kids Short Stories. I mean, first of all, this guy is just a machine with putting out content. He's putting out like 16 episodes a week or something yeah. ludicrous. Wow. And the way he does it is by writing for, first of all, writing for his kids, the stories that he wished that they had, and then asking in this really genius feedback loop, saying to his community, hey, would your kids like a short story? The kid writes the prompt. He comes back, writes it up, and his show is just growing month over month over month because the parents are listening and the kids are listening. And that's where I think there's this really interesting opportunity for people who are making kids focused content is realizing you're kind of doing the Pixar play where when you watch a Pixar movie, there's one narrative which is running for the kids, like they're laughing at Woody and Buzz Lightyear falling over. But then there's this subtle, emotionally complex plot that's going on top of that for the parents that are watching. So they enjoy it because they're the people that are buying the movie tickets, remember? So you kind of have to do the same thing, I think, with your podcast content of allowing the kids to have fun with it, but also the parents. You know, one of the most brilliant podcasts of all time, I'm just going to put this out there, like this is to me the epitome is a podcast called Chompers. It's a four-minute podcast that was put out there and, you know, sponsored by an oral hygiene company that I don't need to name here. And it's designed for to give your kids, basically toddlers, something to listen to while they brush their teeth. And to tell them, like, now move to the upper left and now move to the upper right and now move, you know... Like it actually tells them where to put their brush and then gives them entertainment and science and a whole bunch of things. And it's a daily kind of podcast. And there are lessons there, I think, for we adults in the room, which is that podcasts that have a place and a context and a time and a reason for existing in that particular context and time are that's the gold, right? Like that's what becomes habit for people. To me, Chompers is like the ultimate expression of that, because if you have a child that's of the age where they should be brushing their own teeth and they're just not doing that, that show does it. And it's, you know, it's entertaining. It's informative. Parents will love it as well. But to me, it cements the storytelling part of what it is that we're talking about. It cements the oral tradition, not just oral for hygiene. Uh, <laughs> the oral tradition <laughs> of storytelling and interest and theater of the mind, which is what I think we're really talking about, and gives it a context and a place and hopefully inculcates in those young minds a receptivity to listen to more podcasts and listen to more oral tradition and theater of the mind, because that's what we're really talking about. And it's that theater of the mind, I think, that really cements the oral tradition of what audio storytelling can be. And that's the thing I think that podcasting should be really concerned about right now is cementing in the next generation the impact and the power of oral storytelling, right? We're very focused on YouTube and TikTok, and there's no question that TikTok is eating the world as far as media is concerned. But, you know, understanding the power and the kind of theater of the mind that oral storytelling can give you, that audio can give you. We need to find ways, I think, to inculcate that into the brains of younger people because 
and I think people do come around to it, right? It, they eventually get around to it, and certainly the radio industry continues to have a actually a very healthy audience with older Americans, not necessarily with younger Americans. And the question is, well, can we convince younger Americans to enjoy audio as much as older Americans do? You know, can we teach them to smoke? <laughs> right? Because yeah. uh, if you don't smoke, you know, as a younger person, you don't smoke as an older person. But I think we can do that. And I think the content is out there. I think the intention is out there. And ultimately, I think the oral tradition is strong enough that we can do that. And that's going to be a huge part of cementing podcasting, not just as this kind of weird, quirky medium that you and I work in, but as a thing that, you know, my son might be proud enough to say, I'm a podcaster. I work in that. That's a career. Like, mm. we're not quite there yet. No, we're, we're a ways off. I think we are getting there. And why I think that messaging is particularly interesting is because if you think about consuming content through a screen, a screen is just one way of telling a story. So one of my favorite fiction books is called Dune and the movie, the first part came out last year. Phenomenal movie in my opinion. And I think that Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer, they really did justice to the book. And they had really big shoes to fill because Frank Herbert's oh, yeah. sci-fi story is legendary. And I won't name names, but another director very much botched that movie a few decades ago. Oh, come on. I and love so, David Lynch. Did you shut your mouth? <laughs> I I love Lynch. I just don't love Lynch's Dune, okay? We can agree to disagree there. But I, I do think that the way that I read the book I think what's so striking is that I have one story in my head. And when I heard Hans Zimmer talk about his creative process for scoring Dune on Song Exploder, he said he had this picture in his head of the book and he almost didn't want to work on the movie because it was so clear his vision for Dune. And the reason he did the movie is because it managed to match up with Denny. And, and they're obviously two hardcore super fans. But the principle that we can take from that is that the medium gave their imaginations room to play. They could come up with their own world. They could conjure their own vision for what Dune ultimately looked like. Yep. And that's what audio represents in my mind is if you take the screen away from it and you narrate to someone and you give them prompts, and even better, if you layer in clever sound design and you use music, you can create this very immersive world that's going on, as you say, in the theater of the mind. And so everyone can have these unique experiences and then you can come together and share them, talk about what's different, talk about what's similar. But there's really, in my opinion, no other medium that can provide that same experience. No, I agree with you. I think my favorite, so I, I'm also, I work a lot in the audiobook industry and with creators in that space as well. And there's one audiobook that is my favorite of all time. It's, I can listen to it over and over and over. I swear I've listened to it like 10 times. And that's Peter Coyote's narration of The Four Agreements. And The Four Agreements is kind of a, you know, spiritual book or, or whatever. And you can read those books in various states of mind. But when you listen to Peter Coyote read that book, because he could read the phone book and I'd be interested, honestly, it makes you receptive. It opens doors. And that is really what great audio content does, is it opens doors in your mind that were either closed or you didn't know were closed or to ideas that you may or may not have been receptive to. 
but it is a part of the story and the narration and the performance of Peter Coyote in that audiobook. Mm. Make you receptive to that message. It's the peanut butter to the jelly <laughs> of uh, of that particular book, right? It all kind of melds together and it forms a third thing, right? There's the narration and the performance. That's one thing. There's the content. That's the second thing. But the third thing happens in your mind. And to me, that is what the best podcasts do. That's what the best audiobooks do. It makes that third thing happen in your mind. And nothing else does that. You know, movies, video, they don't do that because they replace that, right? But that kind of power enables a kind of opening up of your soul, of your heart, of your mind that I don't think any other medium can do. And I, I just went deep on you there, but that's the deal. Well, I think I know my next action right after this podcast is turning this into yes. Peter Coyote's narration. I got to jump on this. Uh, Peter Coyote is astonishing. And I don't know if you know him or... I don't, uh, no. American actor. His voice is rough and gravelly and grounded, and it makes that book more than you just think come it alive. is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's already pretty great. I mean, it's yes, uh, it is. It has some pretty foundation shaking ideas. So I'm going to have to check that out and report back. There's one other thread that I'd love to talk about today, Tom, and just touching on your research. And that's the way that monetization is potentially going to evolve with creators. So what I think is kind of interesting with how the creator economy is unfolding right now is a lot of times what we might define as making it when you've made it often means selling off your IP to someone else. That's kind of the IP game that we're playing where, for example, we crashed a show that Wondery produces, sells off their IP for Apple for a lucrative sum of money. Apple then turns it out into a TV show. This is happening all the time. Paramount, Netflix, they're, all the big content houses are kind of bidding for this really top talent. So in your mind, what does the monetization flow look like for creators kind of stepping into the podcasting ecosystem now? What opportunities are there and are there any patterns that we should be paying attention to? Well, I think it's a tech problem at this point. I think there's an incredible opportunity for podcasters with programmatic advertising and monetizing the incredibly long tail of podcasts. You know, and I, I say this as someone that has looked at podcast metrics for 18 years, you look at the top podcasts and the podcasts just kind of under that tier, and there aren't that many really big podcasts. There's a handful that really attract, you know, millions of Americans. And below that, there's just literally millions of podcasts that have small audiences. And it's a tech problem that we can't monetize that. And it's a tech problem that is currently being solved, I think, and it requires podcasters to kind of buy into that and to understand what programmatic advertising, you know, which allows the buying and selling of the buying of podcasts with, you know, various criteria to happen to be easily facilitated, which is really what needs to happen here. And you think about this, and even if you have a podcast with 5,000 people, right? I mean, if your podcast is has a smaller audience than that, then you're not going to make money. But if you have a podcast that reliably brings in 5,000 people an episode or whatever, like you can make 
car lease money from programmatic advertising. And it's meaningful. And that keeps you in the game. That keeps you going. And, you know, maybe that enables you to make an investment in some other area of a business that that podcast serves. But to me, that's really the thing that needs to be unlocked here is that podcasters need to embrace programmatic advertising. Programmatic advertising needs to continue to push forward with the tools that make it easy and uh, accessible for people to buy your shows. And even with a modest audience, I think that can give you the impetus that can give you the resources to continue and do something else, you know, to grow, to continue to push it forward. And that's, I'm really passionate about that. Mm. I do also think it's worth thinking about what your path to monetization is. So programmatic for me, that feels like the kind of very consistent trade of listener to revenue. If you are a consultant though, you may need less people listening to your show, but if you can have a really direct relationship with your clients and that ends up, if one season converts 10% of your guests that you have on the show to be a decent retainer, then you have a profitable podcast by virtue of that. So I think keeping your eyes and ears open for the different paths is important too. Yeah, you're 100% right about that. And, and you know, everybody's path to what makes a podcast worth it is going to be different. And to me, if there are people that are curious about your brand, and you know, one of the most successful kind of branded podcasts that I know of is the Trader Joe's podcast. The Trader Joe's podcast is incredible. It's incredibly well done, but it also works because it doesn't sell the brand. It talks about the brand to an audience that is curious about it, because if you've ever been into a Trader Joe's, you have questions. <laughs> It's a weird, right? Like people are like weirdly passionate about what's going on yeah. in, in Trader Joe's. And so it's a brand that you're curious about. And to me, the podcast is like the greatest way to satiate that curiosity. It's kind of a no-brainer for them to do that. And that's what makes that one of the most successful B2B podcasts that I know of. Because you actually, I want to hear that story. Like, are you really that passionate about the salmon roulades? Like, you know, who hurt you? Um, <laughs> and yeah, they are. So I'm so into that. They love it. Yeah, there's a really good episode of Invest Like the Best mm. where the co-founder of Bullish, Mike Duda, is interviewed. And he talks about their philosophy for developing brands. And that starts with developing an audience. And he uses Trader Joe's as his example. And he says, Trader Joe's marketing is genius because... They don't just target a demographic. He's someone who doesn't believe in demographics, actually. He says no one is aged 35 to 42. But what they do is target a 42-year-old teacher who drives a sedan. And you can picture that guy in your head. You know he wears glasses. You know he's got a flannel shirt on. And you know that he drops money at Trader Joe's because that's the whole persona. So I think this kind of successful brand content play that you're saying, it starts by thinking audience first. Yeah. And like, that's the, uh, not to give myself away here too much, but you know, one of the things from the creators that hurt me to my soul was how few creators are 55 plus. And I just turned 54. And it, you know, when you take a survey, there's like a drop down and it's like 45 to 54. This is my last year of being able to select yeah. that drop down. And I had 30 years behind me of a career. I have 30 more to go. Let's go. 
Um, and I have 30 more to go with more money than I had in the previous 30. And, you know, podcasts, they're not really serving the, the 55 plus audience, but also I would challenge the whole like 55 plus thing. Like that plus is doing a lot of work there, right? For people like me who are about to turn 55, who are not retired, and for people that are, you know, have wealth, have disposable income, who already have tradition to listen to spoken word audio from previous years of radio, you know, the podcast industry is not serving those people very well. And that's, I think, something that's such blue ocean for me. Yeah, totally. I think also more and more people are adopting the technology required to listen to podcasts every year. And so 20 years ago, it might be, and I know podcasts didn't exist 20 years ago, so, but well, they just almost. did just bear yeah. with me. Yeah, almost <laughs> exactly. Like it would be unthinkable or very unlikely that a 60 year old might listen to a podcast just because the tech isn't there. But today, like my dad has listened to podcasts and he's in his seventies and it's quite likely that more mature audiences are going to be listening to your content and there's going to be an audience for that. So I'm very hopeful about that. And I think there's a ton of opportunity. I would love to segue to our final segment for today, Tom. It's been a ton of fun. I'm going to end with a lightning round. So I've got some quick fire questions for you. All right. And you've got to say the first thing that comes into your head. You ready? Okay. All right. First up, what's one piece of software or hardware that you can't live without? Oh, this mic. It's a Shure MV7. It's the best thing I've found. And I don't use an interface for it. It's just like, it's a plugged into my soft, it's plugged into my computer. It's not an XLR input, whatever. I just use the USB, but I've got this thing tuned up pretty good. So I love this. Love that. Yeah, the MV7 is a great mic. Next question. What's your favorite podcast that you've been listening to right now? Uh, 20,000 Hertz is my favorite podcast. And I've been a big fan of that for years. I love the sound design. I love the ambition. It's a podcast that basically explores the most meaningful sounds. You know, everything from the that Netflix does and like the story behind that to the, you know, the THX sound that you get when you're in a movie theater. It's a podcast about the sounds that matter and the sound design, the production of that are just unparalleled for me. So that's a huge win for me. I love that. Very on brand as well. Yeah. Having a podcast about sound. Next question. I love this one. What's the most fun that you have when you work? It's this, to be honest with you, I, I love talking to people about podcasting. I love doing podcasts. I actually, I love doing podcasts and I don't have, you know, I, I do a, a narrated version of the articles that we do on Sounds Profitable and that's kind of what passes right now for what I do, but I actually love talking to people about this. So like doing podcasts for me, it's a joy and I love listening back to them. I love promoting them. I just love talking about this medium because, you know, and I said this before, I think I want this space to be something that if my son says, I want to be a podcaster, I don't want that to be weird. Mm. Like, I don't want that. I don't, like, what? Like you're a YouTuber? Like, no, I want that to be a career. So anything I can do to, to make that happen for people and doing podcasts like this, like, I love this. I really do. That warms my heart to hear it. Well, it's been really great having you on. Penultimate question. What's one piece of advice that you would give to a creator who's starting out today? It would be to do a shit ton of podcasts and put them under your bed. Don't release them. I think there's a, 
a prevailing piece of wisdom that I don't agree with in this business about, you know, failing fast and just trying things. Well, you can try things, but you don't need to release them. And, you know, here's the, the, I guess the kind of advice I would give about that, you know, Thomas Edison had 10,000 different, literally 10,000 different takes at the light bulb. Right. And, you know, you can look at that and say, well, just, you know, keep failing and trying, whatever. Well, he didn't ship those 10,000 light bulbs. He shipped the one that worked, right? James Dyson shipped the vacuum that worked. And he also had thousands of different prototypes. So don't be afraid to try things out. Don't be afraid to work on your craft, but you also don't have to release things. And, and, and so just like an advice I would give to a writer, write what you want, but stick it under your bed for a night and see if it's really something you want to put out there because you don't have another chance you don't have another opportunity. You have one shot. So why not make it the best it can be? And that doesn't mean that you need to curtail what you're doing, but it does mean that you need to think about what you release. I love that. You never hear that from anyone. No. I think the everyone just says, ship it, get the reps under your belt, pump up the feed. But actually, quality is everything. And the, the thing that determines the shows that win is the audio that's worth listening to. And you only create audio that's worth listening to after reps. So... Tom, this has been phenomenal. Really enjoyed having you on the show and thank you for the insights you've shared. If people want to keep up with you and your ideas, where can they follow you online? I'm on Twitter at Webby2001, which was cool 20 years ago. <laughs> and uh, at soundsprofitable.com, where my partner Brian Barletta and I are really trying to push the space forward. So thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Tom, thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode and any ideas you've got for future content. You can email me directly at ben at workweek.com. To keep up to date with the very latest content, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend who might find it useful? I'll see you next time.